Genesis 1, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. To the core of your being, in body and spirit, you are male or you are female. By God's creative design, you relate to all things, to all people at all times, as male or as female. There are times when this distinction is less obvious than others. As you read a book or brush your teeth or run a vacuum cleaner or something along those lines, you're really not usually very aware of your maleness or your femaleness necessarily, depending on what you're thinking about. But there are times when this distinction is uh, just not as obvious. It doesn't loom that large. There's other times when it looms very large. It's very much the point. A story is told of a young man who participated in a high school anatomy class. It was a project the class was doing together, and they hooked him up with a bunch of wires and a speaker, and they were listening to his heartbeat. Unannounced, and suddenly, a young girl walked into the room to whom he had a particular attraction, and thump, 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 thump. The thing moved a lot faster all of a sudden, and it gave everybody a good laugh. And obviously in that moment, at that place, male and female became a very important issue. It was, it was the issue. Sometimes our distinct sexual identities are highly pronounced, such as at a wedding. At other times they lie below the surface, as when we go for a walk. But one of the crucial aspects of our sanctification as believers is to skillfully handle the distinction between male and female that the Creator has woven into the fabric of our everyday lives and of our personal existence. Let me say it this way. If you have come to realize that your sin alienates you from God, and if you have been reconciled to God by trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior from God's wrath, then God is progressively purifying your life. And one of the aspects of that purification process is the ability to discern how to faithfully emphasize male-female distinctions. The temptation for us is to, at times, overemphasize some of those distinctions. At other times, the temptation is to underemphasize or minimize distinctions in an inappropriate way. Sometimes the temptation is to exploit those distinctions for selfish advantage. Men can do this and women can do this in their own unique ways. The local church is to be a household of faith in which the distinctiveness of male and female is beautifully and biblically honored, indeed put on display. In this house, here in this household of faith, men should live out their Christian lives as men, and women should live out their Christian lives as women. We should do so in harmony, 
We should do so in mutual love. And our relationships to one another should combine to reflect then the beauty of God's creative order and of his design. As the Apostle Paul continues his instructions to Timothy here in 1 Timothy, as he continues to instruct him on how life should be lived within the household of faith, how it should operate, Paul's attention as he draws Timothy's to it, turns to this relationship of men and women in the assembly. This is not an exhaustive instruction by any means. But Paul does address the appropriate function of women in the church particularly. But first, we turn to men in verse 8 of chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 8, remembering the context of verses 1 through 7, the church is to be a praying community, the worldwide mission to bring all nations to salvation in the one God through the one mediator, Jesus Christ, is predominant in this section. And now, as he comes to verse 8, then the reference to prayer makes perfect sense. Verse 8 of chapter 2, Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. In every place, perhaps referring to every assembly of believers gathered for worship, the phrase is somewhat indistinct. But in every place, the men are to pray. Men are distinguished here from women as those who should lead the assembly in prayer. I think that is the meaning of the text as we compare it contextually. Paul does not necessarily restrict women from praying in church, but he certainly singles men out here as those who will lead the church in prayers. I desire then that in every place the men should pray. They should pray lifting holy hands. This was the typical attitude, that is the posture of prayer in the ancient world. Hands were lifted up with palms turned to heaven, whether this way or this way, however that was, that was how they just typically prayed. We tend to think of prayers in our culture and setting uh, often as folded hands or something of the like. I don't think the, the idea here is significant as to how the hands are held. The point here is clearly figurative. It's impossible, literally, to have holy hands in the truest sense of the term, but it is a figurative use, and I think probably coming from the Old Testament context. In the Old Testament context, there was, remember, these purification rituals, the washing of hands, which was to indicate, of course, not just that a person had clean hands. They didn't have any dirt under their fingernails or something like that. The point was that there was, it was an indication of a pure heart. A holiness of heart is at issue here. Come before God with pure hearts, lifting hands that are holy to Him in prayer, without anger or quarreling. The context here is probably verses 3 through 7 of chapter 1. Remember, there were certain individuals who were teaching false doctrine, verse 3. In verse 4, they were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promoted speculations. Note that word. There were speculations. That is, there was a lot of debate over biblical minutiae leading to angry hearts that disputed with others. And some, perhaps, were bent toward disputing in their prayers with others as these false teachings were being pressed. What pitiful irony to pray for the reconciliation of the nations to God, the context of chapter 2, while nursing war in your heart toward others in the church. So lift up holy hands, have pure hearts as you come in prayer. And this is not to be a place of disputation and fighting and anger and frustration with one another. There is to be grace, 
There is to be a focus upon the mission. Come before the Lord in prayer. This is the kind of man that should lead in prayer in the assembly. Now he moves to women. And looking first of all here at how men pray, but now how women should dress in verse 9. It seems like something of a jump, but let's remember it's within the context of the household of prayer. Verse 9, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. You notice the word likewise here. Men should pray, likewise women should adorn themselves appropriately. Again, it's not exhaustive. He's just talking about issues that probably were significant issues in the church at Ephesus. And so focusing upon these issues, he says, here is what I, my instruction for men in their public prayers, and here is my instruction for women in their public dress, in their public attire. Likewise, they should dress in a manner that is respectable. The Greek word could be translated well-arranged or becoming, and when used of clothing, it usually has some sense of modesty. That which is well-arranged or becoming. And the word modesty is also used here next. The Greek term speaks of what Trench calls feminine reserve. It is a sensitivity that shrinks from offending or shocking others with inappropriate dress. It is dress that is to be self-controlled. The Greek word means to keep a rein on one's passions by exercising good judgment and moderation. This is pretty straightforward instruction, isn't it? as to what is to take place within the assembly. And it says much to us to our very day. I'm grateful that this isn't a dress code, but it is rather principles that can be followed to this very day and should be followed in our setting. Ladies, the primary reason that you wear clothes, I think, is really ultimately for the eyes of others. Now, somebody could say, well, I wear clothes to stay warm and I wear clothes to be comfortable, and I wear clothes uh, for cleanliness purposes. I change clothes because some are, being in, are in the laundry. And all of that, of course, is true, but you know, you really could. If you could put all of the fashion industry together, they all put their heads together, we could really have some sort of space suit that was climate-controlled and self-cleaning, and that's all we ever wore. You're really dressing for the eyes of other people, particularly in the area of fashion. Let me ask it this way, whose eyes are you attracting with the way that you dress? If you're attracting the eyes of men with dress that draws attention to your body parts or your high fashion, you are out of line with God's instruction here. It's that simple. When the shape and size of a woman's breast or when the precise form of her bottom for instance, is not left to the imagination, this causes serious disruption to men. And let me say this, which is sometimes misses a lot of people, men of all ages. We do not just dress for those of our age, we dress for men particularly who God has designed to be more stimulated by sight. We're dressing for all men. We cannot take our fashion cues then from the pop singers of our day or from the Hollywood stars. We just can't. I didn't even have time to pick it up. 
I'm a little bit unsure, but pretty sure, as I looked out on the porch this morning at the morning paper that's still in that yellow cellophane, there was a woman on there with a microphone in her hand, and I'm pretty sure I know how she's dressed, though I couldn't see it. But you just pretty much know when you see in the media someone holding a microphone in their hand, or the picture of an individual who's starring in some movie, you can pretty much know the kind of dress that will be shown. It's cultural. It's the cues that our world sends. That's not where we should be going for our dress styles. Now, let me say this, that dress styles certainly change, and with them, also cultural sensitivities change. I don't think we're aiming at a pinprick on the page. There is a circle, and that target moves a little bit over time. Let me illustrate, for instance, in some periods of history, for a woman's calf to be exposed, and even for a woman's ankle to be exposed, was scandalous. Now, I don't think we think in those terms in our setting, and I don't know how to filter all that or understand all of that or how God sees it all. But we have to realize that there is adjustment within the culture of our time. And this has always been the case. Now, our culture moves rapidly. Western culture has moved quite rapidly, particularly in recent generations. But the point is, there is something of a changing target at times. But I think within each culture, there is a certain sense of what is appropriate, what is self-controlled, what is modest, what is appropriate to the situation, particularly of a church setting. So the issue is sensitivity to what is appropriate to the setting. This sense of appropriateness must also relate to the particular setting. There is a certain appropriateness for a church picnic that is not precisely the same as the appropriateness for a wedding, let's say, or a church event. There is a certain appropriateness for a Wednesday night, depending on the activity and the setting and what we're doing here as a church, as compared to Sunday morning. So we need to bring all of these ideas into view. There's not this simple dress code that answers every situation, but there needs to be a sensitivity to follow the principles that are laid out here in God's Word, principles of respectable dress with modesty and with self-control. All of this then relies, I think, largely upon the conscience of the woman. And certainly there are those who are closest to her who can help teach her conscience as to what is appropriately fashionable and what is inappropriately fashionable of what is feminine and what goes over the edge in that very category. So just as one parting word, ladies, revealing clothing presents a temptation to men. This is sometimes difficult for women to to filter because the thought is, why are men so terrible? Why are they such animals? You'll never understand the way a man clicks, just like he'll never understand the way that you do. But we need to understand this, that God has designed men to find greater stimulation through the eye gate. You must dress for them. Now let's continue on in verse 9 as we now look at the negative. Those are positive principles. Looking at the negative, he says, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. 
This is not how she is to dress. The context of the day was that of elaborate hairstyles that took hours to fashion with intricate braids piled high on the head and with jewels woven into the hair and hanging from it. There's pictures of these things. Any kind of hairstyle or jewelry is not out of place. That is not the point. It's not that braids are are evil or that jewelry is evil. It's not that nice clothes are sinful in and of themselves. I don't think that's Paul's point here. I think the point is any kind of style or any kind of jewelry or accessories or anything of the like that falls out of line with what is respectable, modest, self-controlled, appropriate to the situation, that's what he's talking about. And in the setting of that day, there was probably this unique style that was out of bounds. It drew attention to the woman in a way that was inappropriate. It's not that that nice clothes, again, for instance, is wrong, but as verse 10 qualifies, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, that's that's not, again, a pinprick on, on on the target. This is something that has to be considered and worked through. We're not saved, certainly, verse 10 is not saying that we're saved by good works, but we are saved to do good works, and a woman's dress should send the message that her life is oriented in that direction. The orientation that I get from the pop singers and the movie actresses and the like of our day, the message that's sent to me as I see their dress is not, there's a godly woman. Just not what first comes to my mind. What first comes to the mind is, we got a temptation here. There's an allure that is here that needs to be handled. That's all that really comes to mind, mostly, that I see. When people see you at church, ladies, what message do you send? What do they see? I don't think there's any virtue in them looking and saying, now there's a dumpy, outdated, unimaginative woman who obviously has no respect for the men of the assembly. I don't think there's any godliness in that. There's no men standing in line wanting things to be seen that way, and none that really sees that as particularly beautiful. Secondly, I think it certainly isn't right to be provocative sensually provocative or flaunting some type of wealth or some certain style that everybody's just attracted immediately to the unique style. No. What people should say is, as they look at your dress, that's appropriate, it's modest, it's reserved, it's appealing, but it's not distracting. I suspect by the way this woman is dressed that she may well be a godly woman or a godly girl. That's what should be seen. That's the message that should be sent. Now, there's a lot of variation in how to send that message. We're not saying every woman's got to dress exactly the same way. There's different economic levels. There's different senses of fashion. There's different comfort uh, desires and interests. All of that is understood, and we certainly have the options in our culture. But this is the message people should receive. As they look at you, it should be there is a woman who very likely is a godly woman. I see nothing on the external that would indicate otherwise. That's the message we should be driving at. As we discern the proper relationship between men and women in the assembly, we are right then to argue that women should dress like women. But we should also say, and this isn't said very often, 
that women should not overemphasize the point. The prostitute over-accentuates her distinctive feminine physique in an attempt to provoke men to see her body and crave it. Proverbs 5, Proverbs 7. She overemphasizes this distinctiveness. Short dresses and tight clothes and low necklines and gaudy accessories and jewelry on the prostitute scream out, Woman, for everyone to see who's interested. And in a somewhat similar manner, Christian women can draw undue attention to their femininity by overstated fashion or immodest dress. Now we come from a culture where people are saying, no one on earth is going to tell me how to dress. Well, God just did. And we better listen. Because He cares. He cares, ladies, how you dress. He cares for the men of the assembly, and He cares for you. How you dress is important. God weighs in on it. And it's pretty clear, let me say also, ladies, to the men of the church, how well you are listening. That's an assessment that a man doesn't even need to think about. It's made almost intuitively and immediately. I cannot know, as a woman walks into this church, if there's bitterness in her heart. It might be showing on her face. But I don't know, even if it is, that it's bitterness. But when a woman walks into the assembly wearing clothes, which we assume she will, but wearing those clothes, those clothes say something. Now this can be dangerously overworked, and I realize I'm walking on the edge of a precipice here. But what is in your heart does show itself to some degree in what you wear. That cannot be overread. Dress doesn't say it all. A person can be very modestly and appropriately dressed and be doing so for wicked reasons. All of that understood. But your dress does say something about you. God is saying that to us. He's not saying it makes no difference. He's not giving us a code here. A sheet of rules that fit us into a certain time period and never move. He's saying within the culture of our day, and there is understood in all of this instruction, a sensitivity to the culture of the day and to the fashion of the day. There is within every culture inappropriate dress and appropriate dress. And we need to land on that which speaks of godliness. That's not what the predominant culture is saying. It just frankly isn't. Fathers, I would appeal to you in particular, and husbands, in the same way, to engage. But I think particularly if fathers, as we're working with our younger daughters, you have to engage. You have to teach. This is an area that needs instruction. Young girls' minds do not work the way men's eyes work. They don't think in those categories. They can't understand that. They need some instruction, appropriate, gracious instruction. But they need to be taught. And as a daughter matures, I think there's probably an increasingly less heavy hand that should be exercised because as she gets older and begins to come to the place of leaving home and moving out, she's beginning to say who she is. And that message is going to need to be displayed and made clear to others. There's a certain place where to simply impose external rules is accomplishing nothing for anyone. 
but particularly as they are younger and they are growing, this is a point that needs to be stressed, needs to be instructed. And I think within this, there's a pretty significant range of freedom to dress beautifully, appropriately, attractively, in a way that does not prove provocative to men. It's possible. There's women all over this assembly that are dressed in that way, and I thank God for that. But let's take it all to heart. Now, deep breath. We move on. How women are to dress, we move then to how women should learn. If the first is rather alarming and attention-getting and difficult within our culture, this next idea is completely out of sync with everything that we see all around us in this Western world. Let's jump back into the ancient context and listen and hear God's teaching. How women should learn within the assembly. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now the context here is the assembly. There are those who would like to turn this to be the home and her relationship with her husband. I think you have to work overtime, 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 triple overtime to get that to work. It doesn't. The context, chapter 3 and verse 15, is the household of God. And the assumption here is that women will learn God's word alongside the men of the assembly. We don't think about this as we walk in the door. Perhaps we should more often. We're sitting, men and women mixed together right here in the assembly, learning God's word together, considering it together. That's appropriate, that's right. Paul assumes that. But in this learning, there is to be quietness. The meaning of the Greek word ranges quite widely, and this creates a little bit of problem for us. But it can mean total silence on the one hand. It can mean simply non-disruptive, that is, peaceful. If there's any contextual clues in this book, we would go to chapter 2 and verse 2, where it says in the prayers of the assembly, chapter 2, 2, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life. That is, believers, the goal is to live a quiet life. What does that mean? Since we're right there, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12 Drawing also from Paul's instruction, 2 Thessalonians 3.12, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Clearly in these two verses, the idea here is not never to talk. The idea is undisruptive, respectful, not contentious. Quiet, peaceful living is the idea. That same idea, then, is to be applied within the assembly. She is to learn with quietness, with undisruptive, respectful, quiet learning. With all submissiveness, it says. This speaking of the authority of the assembly and her relationship to it. So this quiet submissiveness will be reflected in the woman's relationship to the authoritative teaching in the assembly. There's not to be resistance to it or opposition to it, or a mean spirit in it, or anything along these lines. But verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man, rather she is to remain quiet. This seems to be an application of precisely what Paul is driving at. She's to learn in quiet submissiveness, which means she is not to teach men in the assembly or exercise authority over men in the assembly. 
Men are to have a distinctive role in both teaching the assembly and exercising authoritative oversight of the assembly. So does this mean that women are never to teach in the context of the church? Titus chapter 2 indicates that older women are to teach younger women in the assembly. So the idea is not that a woman is not capable of handling the truth of God. In fact, she's instructed to do so as she guides and nurtures along younger women in the assembly. In Acts chapter 18, verses 25 and 26, in a way that appears to be a commendation, Priscilla, a woman, is teaching Apollos theology. She is teaching him the things of God. It says that she, with her husband, together, they took him, Apollos, and explained to him the way of God more accurately. It is not wrong for a woman to instruct a man, to give information to a man, to help a man understand the truth of God, and that is not inherently wrong. Clearly, in 2 Timothy, she is to teach children, as was the case in Timothy's own life with his mother. So the reference here, back in 1 Timothy 2, is to teaching men and exercising authority over men as God's word is proclaimed in the assembly. And we just do not have enough background information to know precisely why Paul makes this point. But we do know how he grounds it. Verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. This for is an important point. It grounds his instruction. Why is it, Paul, that you are saying women should not teach in the assembly or exercise authority in the assembly? We'll get to how some people fill in the blank here, but let's just talk about how Paul fills in the blank. He says, for Adam was first formed, then Eve, verse 13. He draws his conclusion from what? From Genesis chapter 2, and soon from Genesis 3. Adam was created prior to Eve, and she was created to help and complete her husband. She is created after him, out of him, and for him. Her orientation was fundamentally bound up with that of her husband. To quote Douglas Moo, he says, The role of women in the worship service should be in accord with the subordinate helping role envisioned for them in creation. I think that's exactly his point. This is how God structured things and designed things. This is how she should function in the assembly, in the church. Continuing forward with the Genesis 2 account, we come to verse 14, which says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, there may be some sense here that men were created to be somewhat less susceptible to deceptive false doctrine. That's not universally true by any means. But Eve was deceived. Adam willfully sinned. She was tricked. He was hard-headed. Neither one of them gets off. Uh, the hook. They're both wrong. They're both sinful. They both chose to walk away from God. But it may be here that as our first mother and father are the archetype of male-female propensities, that there is some sense in which God has uniquely equipped men generally to lead in the assembly to teach true doctrine. But remember, there's false teachers who are men in this very context who are teaching the wrong thing. So it's not like women are somehow the only ones who are deceived by false doctrine. I think there's a bigger point here, a more significant point. And that is drawn from Genesis 2. It is that Eve was created to help her husband and honor God's word. When she insisted that he take the fruit, when she was before that deceived by the serpent, he followed her into sin. 
The point is not that Eve is being punished for her propensity to deception. The point is rather that God created Adam and Eve to function in a head-helper relationship, and when that order broke down on the day that she was deceived, on that day, catastrophe struck. Now follow this. The local church, then, is to display God's creative intention for the proper relationship between men and women. This is to be a household, a family, in which we lift up God's original design, in which, in a sense, we recover it out of a culture that's twisted and running away from it. Men are to take spiritual lead in the church as Adam failed to do in the garden. And women are not to join Eve by standing in the role of authoritative teacher in the assembly. It has nothing to do with their ability. It has nothing to do with their insight. What it has to do with is the design that God intended to bring joy to his world in the relationships between men and women. She will teach the word of God. She has a distinct and important, in fact, vital place in the assembly of the church. But that place is not giving leadership authoritatively and teaching God's word authoritatively to the assembly. This is just as inappropriate and immodest as provocative or excessive dress. It's the same thing. Now, verse 15 is a troubling verse because it is very tough to know what Paul is saying. 30 seconds with the man and we'd have it figured out. But God wants us to walk by faith for a while. And so we're going to have to take a stab. But he says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Now, I don't know how to read that phrase without connecting it to Genesis 2 and 3. There has to be some connection there. She, in the singular, is probably drawing from Eve. Or it could be from verse 12. This is what she is to do. This is what she is not to do. I do not permit a woman to teach. And therefore, verse 15, she, this woman, will be saved through childbearing. But it's probably, again, reflecting the Genesis account. Eve fell into sin when she usurped her husband's role. But her place in redemptive history was to bear children. And she fulfilled that function. And as she fulfilled it, she contributed to the birth of Messiah. This is not, as so many want to turn it, into a demeaning thought. It is a very liberating and beautiful thought. It is through her that Messiah was born. Genesis 3:15 and 16 and verse 20. She is called Eve, the mother of all the living. And in that prophecy of the one who will come to crush Satan's head, she is the originator of that line, in a sense, as she is the mother of Seth through whom Messiah will be born. In like manner, Christian women are to find their role not in teaching and exercising authority over men, but in their role as mother and wife. You have to go back and soak in Genesis 2 and 3 for any of this to make sense. We can't start at this verse and start to say how it doesn't fit with our culture. Maybe it means this. And maybe We've got to go back to Genesis 2 and 3. There's two pictures. In Genesis 3, we have Eve, who is deceived by Satan, who buys into false doctrine and leads her husband into that, who willfully sins, and it's a mess. 
And we're in the mess today with sin. That's one picture of Eve. The second picture of Eve is the one who is the mother of all the living and the one who begins the blind to the Messiah who will redeem us from all of this. In other words, there is a redemptive role for women within God's plan, and there is a role that is inappropriate for them. The church should be a place where we celebrate the right place. This is not addressing relationships outside of the church as such. There may be some carryover in some places, but it's really not talking about anything outside of there. It's saying that within the church, we are to hold high this distinctiveness, to honor it. And women should find within their appropriate biblical function the grace of God. It should be displayed in the assembly. She will be saved through childbirth. It is a reference that links again to Genesis 3, but stands here, I think, as a general symbol of genuine femininity. It's just as applicable to single women and women who will never have children. It's just spoken in general terms of women walking in the line of Eve and participating in the redemptive plan of God according to the way that he has structured for them. Remember the false teachers, chapter 4 and verse 3, they forbid people to marry. They were speaking in this way and trying to stir up people who would respond and not seek marriage. Paul says marriage is good. We should pursue marriage, and women should pursue marriage, and women should pursue child birth. But again, I think much broader than just that, they should enter into the redemptive stream according to the will of God. Now, he's not saying here that by having a child they'll be saved. That's not the point. Because it's qualified there at verse 15, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. If she perseveres in the faith, if she shows the fruits of genuine repentance unto salvation, she will be saved ultimately. It's not a salvation that is earned by having children, but it is one that is received as a gift through Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. If she enters into that relationship with Christ... It will be evidenced by faith and love and holiness and self-control, and she will be saved. This is a mess. It is a mess that we're in. We are in a sinful world that is twisted and distorted and fallen. But there is a redemptive plan. There is a redemptive pattern. And God calls women in the assembly to see that pattern, to walk into it with joy, and to follow through on God's creative purposes. All right, how do we get out of this? That's the question most take to this passage. How do we take what is plain black and white right in front of our faces and get away from it? There's a lot of ways. There are theologians who have stood up and said Paul was wrong. That's position number one. Paul Jowett took that position. Paul just blew it. He wasn't Evolved enough. Still a bit of a Neanderthal. He got it wrong. He blew it. That's position one. Second idea that many would argue along a lot of different lines. And I've read one commentator that said there are 15 distinct positions on this passage. But most of it, I think, can be boiled down to these three. Paul was wrong. Secondly, and this takes up probably the majority of those 15 positions, there is a unique contextual problem going on in the church at Ephesus that is no longer applicable to us. Which I always, 
work not to laugh at that as if we have no problems with male-female in our churches <laughs> in these days and in our culture. Obviously, we've got a few problems of our own. But at any rate, this is just Ephesus, just that time, and it's to be dismissed. There's lots of ways to work through that. One of the more popular is B.W. Winter's New Roman Woman theme, that there was this New Roman Woman idea that was prevalent at Ephesus, and women were trying to dress like this cosmopolitan woman and, and were not having children and were trying to usurp authority over men, and Paul is just addressing that unique contextual situation. S.M. Bao has answered that quite well. And if you're interested in that article, you can find it, talk to me, very accessible. But in all of these ideas, it's a way to say we can get around this. The third idea is that teaching and exercising authority are, are, are really to be seen here as negative concepts. In other words, she's not to be domineering in the way she teaches and exercises authority. She is to be submissive and gracious in the way she exercises authority. You can think if that one works for you. The other is that women are here seen simply as wives in the home. I talked about that a little bit earlier. But the idea here is that this is just dealing with men and women as married couples within the home, not men and women within the assembly. I think you can see that through these ideas, there's nothing that really fits very well with what's right here in front of us, unless we want to just write it off as a unique situation to that time, in which case I ask, why did God even bother us with it? Paul has letters that were lost. Why not lose this one? Why is it here? Before I get back to it, give me just a few more moments. R. Kent Hughes has brought together what a lot of scholars have taken a lot of time to say and has put it real succinctly, so let me just read from what he writes. Bob Yarbrough, professor of New Testament at TED, surveyed the scholarly articles in the standard bibliographical reference tool, the New Testament Abstracts, and noted that it was only in 1969 that the progressive revisionist view began to appear in the literature of the Academy. Let me say that, if I can, in even simpler words. Everybody took this passage at face value for 19 centuries. Virtually everyone. It says what it says. But in 1969, which happens to come right on the tail of feminist movement in the West, all of a sudden, articles began to pour out of the presses of how this passage doesn't mean what it seems to mean. Yarborough concludes, this proliferation is directly connected to the women's movement in the 1960s. It is indebted, he says, significantly and at times probably culpably to the prevailing social climate rather than to the biblical text. In other words, people are listening to what our culture is demanding and thereby coming up with schemes to walk around this text and say it doesn't have anything to do with us. Similarly, Hughes continues, Harold O.J. Brown observes when opinions and convictions suddenly undergo dramatic alteration, although nothing new has been discovered and the only thing that has dramatically changed is the spirit of the age, it is difficult to avoid the conclusion that that spirit has had an important role to play in the shift. We're listening and taking our cues from the culture 
and letting that say what we want to say about this text. And let me tell you, I sat for hours and hours this week reading people who try to get around this text. There are all kinds of schemes and ways and plans to say that it doesn't mean to us what it meant to the Ephesian church. We've got this all wrong when we do that. We've got it all wrong. And it's becoming the prevailing view, and I have no doubt that by the end of my days, should God extend my life and allow me to see these days to come, it will be the predominant view among evangelical believers, let alone liberal Christians. What holds me to this straightforward reading is its grounding in Genesis 1 through 3. This is where Paul grounds the text. This is an application of what God, our Creator, has brought into being by His grace. And here's where we break loose from the shackles of our own world. Where we break loose from the feminist agenda to turn women into men. We break loose here and say, our Creator's design was good. When Paul speaks here of women not exercising authority in the church over men or teaching men in the assembly, this is not a reflection of anyone's punishment. We think in those terms because we are conditioned by our culture to do so. But when we begin to think in our Creator's terms, we realize that this is God's good and perfect and beautiful design for men and women within the spiritual family. Here, again, I appeal to Hughes, is a culture-busting statement. Hear it and let it sink in. Church leadership is not about power. It is about dying. That is so well said. And this is the orientation that we should take to it. Men, as the Scripture teaches, are to lay down their lives in loving deference to and defense of the women of the assembly. They are the ones who are to pour their time and attention into fighting the false doctrine and into proclaiming to the assembly the truth of God and taking the licks and the hits and the disagreements that come with that. This is their calling by God. And women are to join with them in honoring the Word of God as we move together, complementing one another's unique responsibilities. But twisted by our culture, our thinking is that whoever is speaking with authority is always the person who has the privilege. Church leadership is not about power, it's about dying. And men are called by God to this place to die for others. These differences are not meant to restrict in a wrong way. They are meant to restrict in a way that leads to glory, to goodness, to joy, to productivity within the assembly. This is God's vision, and we cannot correct it. We cannot better it. And we could really save a lot of trees if we just stop trying to get around this text. It is amazing, the books that are rolling off of the presses and the articles that are rolling off the presses to find ways to say, Paul didn't mean what he said. He meant what he said. 
Because God means what he's saying about men and women. There is a beautiful structure to his creative design. Yes, it's twisted by sin. And men hold the lead pole position on twisting it. But that doesn't change God's design. It's for our good. And these differences then between male and female and the function that we are to have in our relationship to one another are to be displayed in a culture that is bent in the opposite direction. We are culture-resisting people in lots of different places, aren't we? This is just one of them. And we do not need to be bent by what is being dictated to us. We need to be bent to listen to our Creator's will. It's good. It's right. It's beautiful. And it's to be followed. We're to honor the Lord as a church, not to adjust to our culture. And as we do that, we display the glory of the Lord, and we are faithful to His Word, and we receive the blessing of that. There's a cost to it. This is a message that will keep churches small and on the fringes, outdated, and ridiculed. But we know our Father's heart, and we can trust it. We just walk with it, and let Him take care of the rest. Walk with me. Keep walking with me as we honor the Word of God. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we need your help. We need your aid. We sense there are, first of all, things in this passage we do not understand. There's a lot more that needs to be said and discerned, and we need to continue to grow and stretch and strive to understand. But God, you have revealed what is clear, what is right, and I pray that we'll take these matters to heart. I pray that men would lead in the assembly in a self-sacrificial manner. They would love your word and your truth and stand up to the opposition from without. I pray for our women that you would help them as they make decisions of fashion and dress. I pray that you would help them as they discern what desires you have for them as they relate to the men of the church. And I pray that we would be able to maintain the true doctrine and enjoy the benefits of it. We pray that you'll help us with the cost that there is to it. And ask God that we would not be drawn to that cost to adjust anything in your word, but that we'd be faithful and just keep asking you, our Father, to explain to us. And there may be some here who say, I don't get this at all. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem that it's possible for God to say these things. God, I pray that you'll show them that it's your love that reveals these words and that we would put it into practice honorably and faithfully and biblically, that you will teach us, God, how to do so, and teach us what we don't know yet, but we're still striving to understand. I pray that you'll open our eyes and help us, and I pray for anyone who is alienated from Christ today through sin. I pray, God, that they'll not hold on to the philosophies of this world, to their own ways, but that they would give freely to you their heart, that they would turn from their sin and respond in saving faith to Christ crucified and risen. You've created a new man, a new humanity in this church, and I pray that you'll continue to add to it by your grace as we listen to you, our Father, and your wise counsel to us. 
through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.